you have uh, printed in your uh, order of worship the uh, passage from John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 14. We looked last week uh, at the beginning of this. It's called the prologue of the Gospel of John. Uh, and it takes the complexity of the deity of Jesus, and as it moves through the, pa- the verses, it, he begins to focus on the humanity of Jesus. Hear God's word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In January, I I hope to read uh, a good deal, and one of the books I want to read, I got a, a couple of years ago, is the biography of of Elon Musk. I know very little right now about Elon Musk besides Tesla and and, uh, SpaceX and things like that. But by the time I finish that book, I assume I'll know a lot about Elon Musk. But I won't know Elon Musk. You can know a lot about a person. You can know a lot about Jesus, but not know Jesus. John, as he writes this gospel, had a desire that his readers would know Jesus. And so he is focusing on the identity of of who this God-man is, Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, we looked at the opening verses last week here of John 1. And the words at the very start are familiar, in the beginning. They're the first words of the Bible in the book of Genesis. Because John is saying, if you want to know who Jesus is, you have to go back not just to Joseph and Mary, not just to the, the prophets at the end of the Old Testament, not to the Garden of Eden where God said, as he told what would happen later, a Redeemer would come. We have to go back before the creation, before God created everything that is to know who Jesus is. He calls him the Word. Uh, among other things, that was the, the philosophical idea, the logos, of the the rationality behind all creation, behind the universe. Uh, It was not personified to the Greeks, but they understood it as a principle, and John takes that since he's writing to all people, not just to Jews and not just to Romans. He's writing that they would understand Jesus is the organizing principle behind everything that is. He is what holds everything together. And now he begins to focus on the humanity of, of of Jesus. And it culminates in verse 14. 
For he says, the word became flesh and lived among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Do you know what the word incarnation means or what that is? It's the idea of, of God taking upon himself a human form. But let me explain to you. When you, it, it's, it's from a, a Latin term that means uh, body, to be in a body. But for guys, when you go to the grocery store and you're going to get some chili in a can, you see chili con carne. What's con carne meat mean? means with meat, because chili con carne can glorify God in a way that chili without can't, cannot. And so that's a Spanish word. That's a Spanish word for meat. But you get the idea. It's for God to take upon himself flesh and blood, meat. The other day I, t I took a funnel, you know, to pour, like if you're going to pour uh, gasoline from a big container into a small container like into a lawnmower or, or oil into a... a a car or something like that. The idea is you take a large volume of something and it, and it funnels it down into a small opening. Well, in the incarnation, God funneled himself into a human body. And that's what was described in the question that we went through together a few moments ago from the Catechism, where it says, how did Christ being the Son of God, become man. And we gave the answer, but there's a, this answer is packed with meaning. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance and born of her yet without sin. It would be very difficult to improve upon that definition of how Christ became a man. That's the incarnation in the incarnation, deity funneled itself into humanity. Now, there's always tension about this. There's always been tension through the centuries because whenever there's tension with what we're trying to understand, the, the tendency is to go to one end or the other. So the idea, how could, how could Jesus be God and man at the same time? Well, the tension has resulted in some have said, well, he really wasn't God. Or he really wasn't a human, not in the sense that we are. And yet the Bible says he is the God-man. And we see it all through the New Testament, for example. We see the truth of his deity and humanity in such places as Isaiah and the, the prophecy in, in Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Jesus. We hear it so much at this time of the year. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Notice the, the two verbs there. A child is born, but a son is given. As a child, human, he's born, but as God, he is given. When the disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee, going from Capernaum to the land of the Gadarenes, Jesus is exhausted from what has happened the day before, all the activities, and he's asleep in the boat. And a storm arose, and it's, so, it's such a strong storm, it, it scares these, many of these men were fishermen and were used to, to that sea, and they were used to bad weather, and yet they fear for their lives. And they awoke Jesus, it says in the Gospels, and said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he, they wake him, and he speaks. 
and he stills the storm. He controls the weather with his voice. Well, what could be more human than being so exhausted that you go to sleep in a boat, which would have been a challenge, and what's more divine than being able to control the weather? And so we see the humanity and the deity. We see that he was a human with human emotions. We see compassion in Jesus. In Mark chapter 8, it says, During those days another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on these people. They have been with me three days, and they have had nothing to eat. And so he says, let's provide food for them. He's moved with compassion. In fact, in our day, when, when someone is just brutally cruel to another person or to a group of people, we say about that person, that person is inhuman. Their actions were, were inhuman because to be human is to be compassionate, as we see in Jesus. We see that he experienced grief and indignation at the death of his friend Lazarus. He wept in Matthew chapter 23. And in his anger, he calls the religious leaders hypocrites and serpents. And we see that he had joy as well. Why is it important for you and me to understand that Jesus experienced these human emotions? Because he understands you and he understands me. He's like us in temptation. In Matthew 4, it said, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And those temptations involve turning the stone into bread, about his hunger, or testing God. He had a, a desire for self-survival. So when you are tempted, and when you pray for deliverance, you are not praying to one who cannot understand and has not experienced the temptation. You want to know that when you go before the Lord and you say, I am being tempted, I am being tempted to panic, or I am being tempted to fear, or I am being tempted to demand my own way, or I am experiencing lust or desire or anger or murderous thoughts or whatever it might be, that you are going to pray to a God who understands. And that ought to mean a lot to us. Someone said, well, how could Jesus be tempted in every area such as we are? I mean, I experienced temptations as a, perhaps as a married person. If Jesus was, wasn't married, how can he? It's the nature of the temptations it's talking about. Jesus was never tempted to drive and break the speed limit. But he would have been tempted to violate the law. And so that's what it's speaking about. He knew suffering. He knew emotional suffering. He knew physical suffering. He knew spiritual suffering. We see that in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, wrestling with the will of God. It boggles our mind to try to understand this. And so by means of the incarnation, he came to know all of life. He knew the trials, the joys, the sufferings, the losses, the gains, the temptations, the grief. He entered into them, and he became a pattern for us. So that when we go through these experiences, as he did, we have the encouragement that he now does what for us? He intercedes for us. He prays for us, and he prays as one who has been there. For some reason, we like, we like to seek counsel from someone who's been through it. 
uh, whatever we're facing, we, we probably prefer to hear wisdom and counsel from someone who can say, I know what you're going through and mean it. And we know that. There's just something comforting about that. Even though they may say the same words that someone else could say that are correct and heartfelt, they just have a different ring to them. I remember when my father died many years ago, coming to church that next Sunday and seeing people that would come up. And I don't, I'd never experienced this because I'd had, never had a parent die at that point. And I could tell who had been through it without them saying it. I could tell by the way they spoke to me or just said, I've been praying for you. And I, it was like, you, you've lost a parent, haven't you? And, I, they, and I, I didn't even know whether they did or not, didn't. You've got a Savior. We have a Savior that we can go to who has experienced all of this. Why? Because he was a human. He was the God-man. Verse 11 and 12 tells us that but as many as received him he came to his own but his own did not receive him that that phrase there when it when it says that in verse 11 he came to his own and his own people did not receive him he came to his own the nation of Israel the people of of God belonged to God they were his possession he calls them that uh, they were his children and he came to that group and yet as a group as a whole they did not receive him but then it shifts there it said but to all it changes the word there but to all now speaking of individuals to all every believer who did receive him who believe in his name he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God someone has said if if God had wanted to communicate to cows he would have become a cow now, don't raise your hand if you've ever been driving through the country and pulled up next to a cow at a fence and mooed at it, thinking that it could talk to you or something. Don't show up. Let's, let's have a little propriety here and not show your hand if you've ever done that. But I, if God wanted to communicate to ants, he would have become an ant. If God wanted to communicate to dogs, he would have become a dog. But he wanted to communicate to humans, so he became a human. And now I can look in Jesus and say, oh, that's what God is like. That's what God has for me. That is how I am to respond and how I'm to live. And so I learned that he's not some impersonal force in the sky or that exists in someone's imagination. He came to his own, but they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, not a small select group, to all, not just a certain nationality, not just at a certain group in history, not just of a certain geography, not of a certain age, to all who receive him. The same is true now, that he is present. The Holy Spirit at this moment, that Jesus is with us. What will you do? Will you receive him or reject him? The choice is up to you. The choice is up to me to receive him. No one else can do that for us. Your mother and father can't do it for you. Uh, I can't do it for you. Your youth pastor can't do it for you. You have to decide, each individual, whether to receive him or not. That means to believe in him. It's kind of like the idea of receiving someone into your home. You open the door, you say, come in. You're accepted. You are welcomed here. 
And so that's what it means to receive Jesus, to put our faith in him, to welcome him into your life, so to speak, in the same way you would welcome someone into your home. You cannot inherit it. You cannot buy it. You must decide whether to receive it or not. And what happens if and when you do? He gives the right to become the children of God. There sometimes, depending on whether you've got a King James Version or other versions of the Bible, it, it takes synonyms of that word, he gave the right, it says he gave the power, he gave the authority, he gave the power to become children of God. Here's the idea that's being communicated. It's like if you purchase uh, a house, then you have the right to that house. And if someone came into that house that broke in, you have the right to say, you don't belong here, you need to leave because I am the rightful owner. So when it says we have the right to become children of God, it's, it's almost like a legal standing that we receive him and he gives us the right then and all the powers thereof as his sons or as his daughters. This is the language of family. Through Christ, we become his adopted, God's adopted children. We have four adopted grandchildren, two at each time. They were not all four adopted at once. And there are a number of people here in our congregation who were adopted when they were young. There are numerous families who have adopted children. Now, on a personal note as a pastor, I wish we were a church that's known as a church that champions adoption by our own example and uh, by helping others as well. Why? Because it shows the heart of God. It shows the heart of God. Is it problematic? Absolutely. Um, and yet it's such a great need. And so God adopts us into his family. Adoption is a biblical notion. It's at the heart of the Christian gospel. Well, when two of those children, grandchildren, were adopted, uh, Jay Strickland in our church here was the, the attorney, and, and I, I was invited to be there uh, over at the courthouse. And I, I don't know, being me, I don't know what I expected, but I go in there with the judge and with the attorney and with my daughter and son-in-law and, and, and uh, the twins that were being adopted and uh, it hit me I, it, it was an emotional I had an emotional response I wasn't planning on and there were a number of reasons to see the joy to see the joy not only of the children but the parents and me and the judge and, and the attorney and all, it was such a celebration of joy because when that judge made the final decision and signed the papers, it was done. And they could say, I have a right to these children, and the children could say, I have a right to call mama and daddy. I am in this family. I am a member of this family, no different than, than any other child. And to see that in a physical way, that's what God does with us. He does it for those of us when we receive him. I was influenced by a campus crusade, what was called then, a campus crusade for Christ staff worker named Jack Bruce when I was in high school. And Jack was a gentle spirit, 
and uh, he and his wife, they, they just love people, they love to witness to people, and Jack had this little thing that he would do that I've never forgotten. When he would introduce somebody to Christ, and he was very good at evangelism, but like a guy, if he explained to that person the gospel and this person put their faith in Christ, he would do this, and only Jack could do it with his, his uh, unassuming personality. You know, now that you've received Jesus, that means God's your father, and God's my father, and you're his son, and I'm his son. So what does that make us? And the guy would look at him and say, brothers? And he'd say, that's right, put her there, brother. And he'd shake their head, put her there, brother. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. This is a family table. And it's a big table. Oh, it's not so big right here, but it is worldwide. And you know who our brothers and sisters are? They are people of every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. And it is increasing every day. You know how many? About 175,000 people a day are joining this family. And so in just a moment, when we come to the Lord's table, table, it's not just the 150 of us or so that are here. It's with hundreds and hundreds of thousands on this life, not including the invisible church of those who have already gone ahead. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we are humble to think that you stoop down and adopt us through Jesus into your family. May our trust be in him and in him only. We pray in his name. Amen.